You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series Crux, a verse-by-verse study of Paul's letter to the Colossians. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. If you please open with me in your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Colossians chapter 3. And um, on Sunday mornings, we have been studying through the book of Colossians in our study titled Crux. Now the word crux, it uh, refers to the decisive point of an issue, the, um, the most important point of a matter, the bottom line, what it all comes down to. But the word crux, interestingly, is also the Latin word for the cross. And the message of the book of Colossians is precisely summed up in that idea, that the cross of Jesus Christ is the decisive, most important point in all of history and for our lives personally. The cross of Jesus Christ is the crux of the issue at hand, whatever that issue may be. Bow your heads with me and let's pray as we open God's word. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we ask that you would speak to us. We know that you are a God who is faithful to do that every time we turn to you, every time we come to you and open up your word. Lord, we pray that this morning also you give us ears to hear what you would speak to us. And Lord, let us not only hear these things, let let us put them into practice in our lives that we might bear much fruit for your glory, for our own good and for the good of people in this world. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you guys have been watching the Olympics? I certainly have. I like watching the Olympics. But of all the Olympic sports, there's perhaps none greater than the decathlon. The decathlon consists of 10 track and field events that last for two days. And to be the winner of the decathlon means that you have to master various different practices from running, jumping, throwing, all these different things. And traditionally, the winner of the decathlon has been given the title of the greatest athlete in the world. In 1976, in the Montreal Olympics, an American named Bruce Jenner won the uh, men's Olympic decathlon. And in the process, he, sent, he set three world records, and he was declared an all-American hero for doing so. Uh, four years after winning uh, gold at the Olympics in the decathlon, he was inducted into the Track and Field Hall of Fame, and all of these things together launched him into kind of celebrity status, where he got a career after that starring in commercials and films and TV shows, and he was generally very successful. Over a, a little over a year ago, Bruce Jenner was in the news once again, uh, as you may know, because he announced that he had decided to change his gender, and along with changing his gender, he also changed his name to Caitlin. But what is perhaps most interesting about the whole story is the statement that Jenner made about why he did this. Like, what what was his reasoning? What was his motivation for making such a drastic change? And in an interview with Vanity Fair magazine, Jenner stated that what led him to do this was that he was deeply unhappy with who he was. And he wanted to become, quote, a new person. He wanted to start a new life. He wanted to start a new life, get a clean slate, and to separate himself completely from his past, have a complete cut, and to become a new person. Now it's interesting because Bruce Jenner, if you think about it, in many ways he experienced levels of success that many people only dream of. He won gold in the Olympics. He set world records. He was given the title of world's greatest athlete. He was successful in business. He made tons of money. He was famous and sought after. All the things that people think, you know, if I had that, then I would have everything I need in life. And he had it all. And yet by his own admission, he was absolutely miserable. Despite all of his outward success, he still had this nagging sense that something was not right, not only in his life, but something was not right with who he was. 
And in an attempt to deal with this deep sense of dissatisfaction with himself, he chose to undergo what is really the greatest uh, transformation which is medically possible in our day and age, which is gender reassignment. It's the most drastic thing you can do medically and socially to become, quote, a new person. Now, what Bruce Jenner was experiencing and what he was expressing is something that I believe that all of us feel to one degree or another. All of us, to one degree or another, feel that there is something fundamentally wrong with us. And we have this desire to become a new person, to shed those things in our lives that we ourselves know are not good, and to become a new person, a better person. But here's the thing. Although Bruce Jenner changed himself radically as a person outwardly, On the inside, he's still the same person. You can change your name, you can change your appearance, but that doesn't change who you are at the core of your personality and the core of your character. So the question is, what can you do? If everyone feels this, right, if we have this desire to be a new person, to have a clean slate, but yet at the end of the day, no matter how much you can change your outward appearance, you're still the same person on the inside, It brings up a question, is it even possible to really change? Is it possible to really be transformed in the core of your being? And if so, how? And that is what our text today is all about. Here as we open up Paul's letter to the Colossians in chapter 3, the title of today's message is A New You. And here's what we're going to be talking about in this section. We're going to be talking about, first of all, already but not yet. Secondly, we're going to talk about living like you're dead. And thirdly, we're going to talk about the power to change. So already but not yet, live like you're dead and the power to change. Let's do this. All right, already but not yet. Please read with me Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things which are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and set your minds on things that are above, not on things on the earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So here in Paul's letter to the Colossians, Paul has been focusing on telling us what is unique about Christianity, what it is about Christianity that makes it completely unique amongst all philosophies and religions in the world. The Colossians lived in a society which was surprisingly similar to our own today in regard to the general attitude towards religion and philosophy. The prevailing opinion at that time in the region of Colossae, which is part of the Roman Empire, was this, that basically all religions teach the same thing. None of them really have the whole truth. They're all just kind of human traditions which people have made up in an attempt to explain the divine. And this opinion led to people saying, you know what we should do then is we should take the best practices from all the religions and put them all together and then we'll drop the parts that we don't like and then we can make our own thing. And some of the Christians in Colossae, they they weren't sure what they should think of this. I mean, is this something they should agree with or is this something they should not agree with? And, And if they shouldn't agree with it, well, why not? And if they should, then why? And so they got all these questions and Paul wrote this letter to address these issues and to clarify for the Colossians the incomparableness of Jesus, the uniqueness of the message of God's grace and the unique power of the gospel in a person's life. So now, as we begin chapter 3... The focus shifts from matters of doctrine to now matters of what those doctrines mean for us practically, basically how your Sunday should affect your Monday. So far, Paul has told us that Jesus, more than just being a teacher of morality, 
He was God come in human flesh to this earth on a mission to save us and redeem us from the curse of sin and death. And the message of God's grace is a message unlike any other religion or philosophy. It says that rather than working to earn God's love and favor and and working to be accepted by God, the gospel is that God has done all the work already on your behalf. He has placed his love upon you and he himself has done everything so that you could be accepted by him. But here's the thing, in order for you to experience those truths and those promises in your life, here's what you have to do first. You have to die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor and theologian who opposed Hitler during World War II, he famously said this, when Christ calls a person, he bids him to come and die. Essentially, he's saying this is the call to Christ. It is a call to come and die. Now, you might say, well, that doesn't sound like very much fun. Like, like who would want to do that? What kind of invitation is that? Come and die? No thanks. Maybe you'd say, well, isn't the Christian message really a message, a call to life? To come and live and find new life and everlasting life in Jesus? Yes, it is. Absolutely. But in order to receive that new life, in order to become that new person, here's what has to happen. The first thing that needs to happen is you have to die. The old you needs to be put to death. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul describes it in this way. He says, I died to the law so that I might live to God. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, he's saying the old me, the me I was before, is dead and I have been given a new life through Jesus, a fresh start, a new identity, a new status. I've become a new person. Now, but here's what's really interesting. Try and track with me here. In this section that we just read, right? Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 through 4. Well, here's what Paul's telling us. To be a Christian means that you have died with Christ and you have been risen to new life with Christ. In other words, he did it, it's done. Past tense. But yet, over and over, as we go on through this section especially, we're going to see this. Paul says, but yet, here's what you need to do. Put to death. Verse 4, he says, put to death that in your life, which is not good. And in verse 10, he says that we are to put on the new self. So you see the issue here. On the one hand, we're told that it's a done deal, right? He did it. It's over. You already have died and been risen to life with Christ. He did it all. But yet at the same time, we still have to actively put to death what is earthly in us and actively put on the new self. Now, how can that be both of those things at the same time, right? Either it's one or the other, right? But, but no, he says one of the key aspects of this is to understand that this is fundamental to the gospel. It's been called this. It's been called the tension between already and not yet. In one sense, a Christian has died to who they were apart from Christ already, But in other sense, dying to your old self is a process which isn't yet complete in any of our lives. We're still in process. We're still under construction. Likewise, in in one sense, we have been, you have been raised together with Christ to new life if you are a believer already. But in another sense, it's something which is still yet to come. You're already experiencing the new life to a degree, but yet not in fullness. Now in our text here in verse 1, Paul says, you have died, you have been raised to new life with Christ, past tense. But then he says in verse 4, when Christ who is your life appears, 
then you will appear with him in glory. In other words, that's future tense. So this idea of already but not yet, this is a recurring theme throughout the Bible. And it's key to understanding what it means to be a Christian living on earth today. Like if you want to know how to live as a Christian, you have to understand this concept of already but not yet. Let me give you some examples. God speaks to a man named Abram in Genesis, way back in the day. Speaks to this man named Abram, and he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation, and from this day forth, your name will no longer be Abram. Your name will be Abraham. Now, what does Abraham mean? It means father of many, father of a multitude. Now, how many kids did he have at that point? Zero, like no kids at all. And it must have been super awkward when he introduced himself to people. Hey, hi, nice to meet you. What's your name? Well, my name is Father of Many. Oh, cool. How many kids do you have? Well, none, but I'm totally believing that God's going to give me some. Oh, well, you know, you're an older guy. I hope that your wife is younger than you are. Well, you know, she's younger, not a lot younger. She's 80, but she's a young 80. You know, she's got a lot of spring in her step still. You know, it was, uh, it was a little bit awkward, I'm sure. Now, you see, here's my point. There was, in between the declaration and the realization, there was a period of 20 years when it was already but not yet. Or how about King David? He's anointed king of Israel when he's a teenager, but yet there's still another guy who's sitting on the throne and acting like he's the king for quite a while. He, for over a decade, David, although he's been declared to be king, Saul is still sitting on the throne, and David, rather than ruling and reigning as king of Israel, he spends these years running and hiding for his life in caves. He's king already, but not yet. There was an in-between period between the declaration and the realization. So then you got Paul the Apostle, and in his letters to the Christians in the New Testament, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes to these people and he says, in Christ you have been justified before God. You are holy. God has glorified you. God has raised you up and seated you in the heavenly places with Christ. And you got to imagine the people reading this were probably looking around at each other and saying, what in the world is this guy talking about? Because, I mean, you guys look nice and all, but you certainly don't look that nice. I mean, like glorified nice. Like, you look good, but I mean, I'm hoping that it gets better than this, don't you? Like, this sure doesn't feel like heaven. This doesn't seem like glory, but yet it says that we're seated in the heavenly places with Christ. And so here in Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, again, Paul says that the glory that awaits us is still in the future. The message of the gospel is that because of Jesus, we are justified, we are glorified, we are sanctified, and we are set free from bondage to sin. We have conquered death already, but not yet. You see, to be a Christian living in the world today is to live in this tension between the already and the not yet. And we're in this kind of in-between place between the declaration and the realization C.S. Lewis, he writes about this, and he says that the reason we have trouble comprehending this is because we tend to think that just as we experience time, God experiences time much the same way that we do. Our lives come to us moment by moment, a series of events in which there's past and present and future. But C.S. Lewis says, now imagine instead an author writing a story. And in the story, the characters are experiencing time, but the author is outside of the time in that story. And he says, if you can picture time as a straight line, 
along which you have to travel, then picture God as the whole page on which that line is drawn. We have to move from point A to point B to point C, but he sees it all, he experiences it all at once, and it encompasses it all at once. And so in this way, God can speak of all things being done already, even though we haven't yet experienced the fullness of them yet. Those things are are already, but not yet. But yet God, who sees all, who's outside of time, he can say, it's a done deal. Chronologically, we just haven't arrived at that point yet, but we will. So Paul says here in Colossians, it says, because you have received this new life, here's how you ought to live. Set your mind on things that are above. Actively pursue heavenly things, not just the temporal things of this life, because he says in verse 3, you have died. You have died to who you were, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The day is coming when you will experience in fullness that which is already a done deal with God. Now, what does it mean then for us to set our minds on heavenly things and to seek that which is above? Adam Clark, a famous Bible commentator, puts it this way. He says, love heavenly things, study them, let your hearts be entirely engrossed by them. The word seek refers to your aspirations and desires. It means to be passionate about heavenly things, to fix your attention upon them. Let me challenge you to, to look at your life right now and consider what are your aspirations? What are your passions? What are your desires? What are the things that occupy your thought life? Are they things above or are they things of this earth? The interesting thing is this, that those people who tend to be the most content in this life also tend to be those who realize that this world is not where it's at. That what they really desire are things which cannot be found in this world. On the other hand, those who try to fulfill ultimate desires of happiness and fulfillment in the thing, with the things of this world, they will be perpetually frustrated. The possessions that they purchase will never be quite what they hoped they would be. The dreams that they pursue will never be quite as fulfilling as they expected them to be. The relationships they form will never be quite as satisfying as they thought they would be. You will be perpetually frustrated until you realize what I'm looking for isn't found here anyway. See, it's not that you're looking for the wrong things. It's not that people are generally looking for the wrong things. It's that people often look for them in the wrong places. See, the things that we want so badly, peace, satisfaction, justice, affirmation, wholeness, well-being, perfection, these are the right things to want, but make sure that you're not looking for them in the wrong place. You see, in order to navigate life in this world, we have to have the right perspective on the nature of this world. For example, how are we to make sense of all of the violence that we see in the world that's so pervasive right now? How are we to cope with suffering that we face or that we see in other people? What we have to do is we have to understand what the Bible tells us about the nature of this world, and that's this, that this world is good, but it is also broken. So it's good, but it's also broken. There is so much goodness in the world that God has given us to enjoy, but yet at the same time, the world is not what it was meant to be. Things are not the way they were designed to be. In fact, this is the very reason Jesus came. You know, when you read through the Bible, you find this this recurring theme, another recurring theme of the sigh of God. You know, a sigh is kind of an expression of frustration or angst, um, sadness. We, you know, we read through the Bible that God, even in the book of Genesis, after he had created the world, it says in Genesis chapter 6, he looked at the world he had created and he was grieved to the heart. 
He was grieved to the heart because he looked at his good creation and it had been corrupted. Things were not the way that they were intended to be. People were not being the people that he had made them to be. And we see Jesus and he comes to earth and he walks our streets. And in one of the most riveting scenes, Jesus meets a man who's deaf and who's dumb. And he looks at the man and then it says that he looked up to heaven and it says that he sighed deeply. A sigh, like I said, is an expression of grief, an expression of frustration and sadness and exasperation. Because Jesus looks at this man and he says, these ears were not meant to be deaf. This tongue wasn't made to stumble. These are the effects of a foreign element that has entered in and corrupted my good creation. And so Jesus came to make it right, not only for that man in that moment, but for all people at all times who would receive that gift of redemption which he came to provide. By giving his life on the cross, Jesus broke that curse of sin and death. Because of what he did, the day is coming when it will all be made right, when there will be no more sickness and there will be no more violence and no more tears and no more death. In fact, what we read here is that it's actually already done, meaning it's already on the books, right? We just haven't arrived there chronologically, but that chapter is already written. It's only a matter of time until we arrive at that place. It's really in the scope of eternity, even just the blink of an eye. So we live in this world understanding that although this world is good, this world is also broken. And we set our hope and our attention, not on the temporal things of this world that are passing away, but on that which is to come. If you do that, if you live with that perspective, let me tell you, you will live with so much freedom, so much more freedom in regard to your work, in regard to your relationships. Because in that case, you will not be expecting things from your work or things from your spouse or from your children, which they are incapable of giving you anyway. You know, many people look to their work or their marriage or their children as the thing which will satisfy the ultimate longings of their hearts. But of course, those things will never be able to do that because what you are looking for, what you are longing for, ultimately is nothing less than perfection, nothing less than redemption, nothing less than God himself. And the sooner you realize that, the sooner you'll stop placing crushing expectations on earthly things and on people, which they're not capable of fulfilling anyway. For a Christian, the best is yet to come. That's the message of the gospel. The best, if you are in Christ, is yet to come. And if you understand that, then you'll be able to live this life with so much more freedom. You know, it's been said that some people are so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good. You ever heard anybody say that? It means that, you know, so pie in the sky. You've got your head in the clouds. You're always just looking forward to heaven. And I think that can be true. I think that if you just check out and you disengage with the world around you because you're basically just like, I'm just biding my time here waiting for death because I'm going to be saved and I can't wait to get the heck out of here, right, and go to heaven. And in that case, you will be of no earthly good, right? If that's all it means to you to be a Christian is like you punched your ticket, you got your thing, and you're just biding your time so you can get out of here, then you might as well just take up smoking and run with scissors and stop wearing your seatbelt, right? Like just speed up the process. But I believe that what God is telling us here is that, that unless you are heavenly-minded, then you won't be of any earthly good. As long as God's got you here, he's got a purpose with you here. And unless you are heavenly minded, then you won't be of any earthly good because it's when your mind is set on what is to come, on the fact that it's already but not yet, that that you're able to live this life with the proper perspective. 
and truly serve God and truly serve other people with your life because you know that the best is yet to come when Christ appears and you appear with him in glory. Now, there are several things that help us to be heavenly minded. One of those things is troubles and difficulties, frustrations and pain. And I'm, I'm convinced that this is one of the reasons why God allows these things into our lives for some, some of us at some times. You know, there are these things which, uh, which keep us longing for what the Bible calls in the book of Hebrews, the better country. That that city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And that's how the book of Hebrews refers to it, to our longing for heaven, that all of us are looking for a place which is not found here on earth. Another way that we are focused, our hearts are focused on things of heaven is by doing what Jesus taught when he said, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. And he said this, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, those of you who have loved ones who have passed away, you understand this very well. I don't need to tell you this because the people you treasure are no longer here and therefore part of your heart is no longer here either. And that gives you some major perspective on this life and on heaven. Another way, though, to direct your heart to be focused on heavenly things is to put your treasures into heavenly things, to invest your earthly resources in heavenly things, your time and energy and money into ministry, which helps to spread the gospel so that people can come and know God and grow in the knowledge of God so that they can also have the hope of heaven. Because wherever you put your treasure, that's where your heart is going to be. One way to direct your heart to be focused on heavenly things is to invest your earthly treasures in heavenly things. So that brings us to our second point, which is this. Live like you're dead. Please read with me from verse 5 of chapter 3. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. You know, Paul is encouraging us here to embrace our deadness. Embrace your inner deadness, right? If you are in Christ, then you have died to the old ways, so don't resurrect them. Consider those things dead to you and yourself dead to them and actively work at continually putting them to death. You know, he uses this metaphor of Jesus being raised from the dead as a, an example for us of how we should walk in this new life. And so think about it. What did Jesus do after he rose from the dead? Well, first of all, he left the tomb. And secondly, he removed his grave clothes. And then he went out and he lived a life of service and ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's the model for us who have died, who have been resurrected to new life in him. We leave behind the dead things. And we move forward to living lives of service to God and service to people, empowered by the Holy Spirit with our focus on heaven. And Paul goes on now to uh, give a list of specific sins. And these specific things he mentioned are what we could call sensual appetites. Sensual appetites. Now, if you want to feed a sensual appetite, the way you feed it is by indulging it. If you indulge a sensual appetite in yourself, you will strengthen it by feeding it and nourishing it. And as a result, it will thrive and it will live and it will be active in your life. But if you treat it as if it's dead, if you starve it out, right? You don't feed a dead thing. 
you starve it out by denying it, then it will be put to death. Paul gives us a list of specific sins. I find that interesting because he could have just said just as easily and put to death all the sins in your life. You know what they are. I don't need to go into detail. But for some reason, he says, no, I'm going to list them. I'm going to name them. And here's why I think. Because when you choose to address and name specific sins in your life and call them out for what they are, that's greed. That's covetousness. That's lust. You know, it's much easier to see those things for what they are and to deal with them. So the first sin he mentions here is sexual immorality. Now the specific word used here in Greek is the word pornea from which we get our word in English, uh, pornography. And this word refers to any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage. Now sometimes you might meet people who say, you know, the Bible doesn't actually really say anything about premarital sex. I mean, like, if you're married and stuff, like, adultery's wrong, no question. You should be faithful to your spouse. But, you know, if you're not married and you're two consenting adults, the Bible has nothing to say about that. Well, that's simply not true. The, the Greek word pornea refers to all sexual activity outside the bonds of marriage. Now he goes on to mention other things, other sensual desires, right? Impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness. You know, it's interesting. It's common to hear people say platitudes in our day and age like, you know, you should do whatever makes you feel happy. Or go ahead and indulge yourself. You know, if it feels good, just go for it. Do it. The problem is this. What if what feels good for you, what if what gives happiness to you, at least momentarily, is something which causes pain for another person? then should you still do it just because it makes you feel good? That's an incredibly selfish way to think and incredibly unloving, really. Because if you look at the things listed here and you consider the outcome of these activities, they are nothing good. I mean, they might feel good for a moment, but in the end, all of these things listed here are things which bring sorrow and division between people and degradation of people. They are all things which result in death. On the other hand, putting these things to death in your life brings life. You know, one of the most important principles to keep in mind in this regard is this. Sin is not bad because it's forbidden. Sin is forbidden because it's bad. I'm going to say that again. So sin is not bad because it's forbidden. In other words, you know, why, why is this thing bad? Oh, well, because it's forbidden. No, that's not why. The reason it's forbidden is because it's bad. And that's an important distinction because it means that God is not just a grouchy old dictator, but he is actually a loving father who cares about you deeply and has your best interest in mind with every command that he gives. Now he goes on to say anger and wrath. Anger being that kind of slow, simmering resentment. Wrath being that kind of volcanic, like, blowing up on people and losing it on people. And he says malice and slander. Malice is when you intentionally want to hurt someone. For example, many people who are passive-aggressive, there's a degree of malice involved with their passive aggressivity. Uh, slander means defaming someone, hurting their reputation by what you say about them behind their back. He says obscene talk and lying. And he says all of these things are from the old life. All of these things have been nailed to the cross with Jesus. Why would you take them down from the cross and try to revive them? Don't touch dead things. Don't feed dead things. Don't try to revive dead things, but walk in newness of life. And here's what he says. You have put off the old self with its practices, and you have put on... The new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. The image we are given here is one of taking off one set of clothes and putting on another set of clothes. A little over a year ago, 
our sewer backed up in the basement, and it was terrible. Like, I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but it was gross. Our sewer's backed up. Rather than hire someone, I decided I'm going to save myself a few hundred bucks, and I'm going to do it myself. So armed with YouTube and my knowledge of plumbing, which was none whatsoever, I set out to fix this problem, and I was successful. But let me say this. In the process, I discovered a few things. I learned some lessons the hard way, one might say, or, um, you know, about how I might do things differently next time. So if any of you need some advice about how to deal with that, please come talk to me first. Let's just say this. There was a fair amount of sewage that was flying and, you know, kind of like splattering everywhere, uh, which could have totally been prevented had I known what I was doing. Why am I talking about this? Here's why. Now, the clothes that I was wearing, pretty gross, totally covered in uh, black water. I didn't even bother to try to wash those clothes, right? I'm not even going to salvage those clothes. I don't care how good the washing machine is. I don't care how much bleach you own, right? Uh, I could have washed those clothes a thousand times. I am never going to wear those clothes again. Like, I'm not even going to think about it. It was one of those things where those clothes went straight into a garbage bag, and that garbage bag went straight into another garbage bag, and they went off, hopefully, directly to the incinerator. And I want you to understand, that's the image here of what he's talking about. Put off the old clothes, man. Don't open up those trash bags. There's nothing good in there. It's gross. Get rid of it. Send it to the incinerator. Put off the old self and its practices. Trust me, you don't want to look in there. There's nothing good in there. There's nothing worth trying to save. Just send it off to the incinerator and put on the new self that has been given to you in Christ. And that brings us to our third and final point, which is this, the power to change. Now, all these things we've been talking about are all well and good, but it does leave us with one unanswered question, and that's this. Where are we supposed to find the power to do such a monumental task as what we've been talking about, about be- of becoming completely new people, taking off the old and putting on the new? Is it just on us that we just need to try hard and get it done? Well, no. See, here's the good news of the gospel, that it's not only that God has done everything on your behalf so that you could be accepted by him. It's not only that he has placed his love on you and made you acceptable to him, but also that he has come into your life to give you the power to do that which he calls you to do. Check it out what it says in verse 11. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and he is in all. All of the things which divide people, race, social status, in Christ, those things are wiped away because we are dead to who we were and we are raised into a new people with a new identity. Not only a new identity, but a new power. The power to change is found in this, Christ in you. Not only have you received new life, but the major factor in this new life is that Christ is in you. Not only does God call you to put off the old life and to walk in new life, but his divine power is in you to give you the ability to do that. And that's why the Bible says this, that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Right? If Christ is in you, then there's no reason why you should ever say, I know that God wants me to do this, but I just can't. I don't have the ability. Not only is it God who calls you, but it is God who supplies you with the ability to do that which he calls you to do. The same power, Paul tells us in Ephesians, which raised Jesus from the dead. The same power which created the universe and which holds all things together. That same power is at work within the person who has received this new life in Christ because Christ is in you. You see, from beginning to end, the work is his. Who's the hero of this story? Well, it's him. 
It's Jesus. It's, it's our loving Heavenly Father. He is the one who saves us. He is the one who gave us new life. And he is the one who empowers us to do what he's called us to do. He is the hero of our story. And our role is to give our lives to him. It's only in him and through him that we can really be transformed into a new person, the person that he created you to be by dying to the old self and putting to death that which is earthly in yourself by starving those things out, those carnal appetites, and then putting on the new self that he has given you and submitting your life to his lordship. And even in that, it is him who gives you the power to do it. That's what it means to be transformed. And it's not only possible, it's freely offered to you today. And so the question is, will you receive it? Lord, we thank you for this transformation that you not only offer us, but which you work within us, Lord. It is you from beginning to end. You are not only the author, but you are the finisher. Lord, thank you for that. And I pray that we would truly give our lives to you. And I pray, Lord, for anybody here today who says, you know what, I need to receive that new life. Maybe they've been trying to do it in their own strength for now, and, and it's just not working. They're not, it's not successful. Lord, thank you that you are the one who works in us to will and to do your good pleasure. And Lord, I do pray that that would be true of us. Lord, that we would walk in the knowledge of you. Lord, that we would walk in the power of the gospel of Christ in us, the hope of glory. Lord, I pray for anyone here today who hasn't given their life to you, or, or maybe they maybe did at one point and they, they really need to give their life to you today. Lord, I pray that they would do that now, that they wouldn't leave this place before saying, Lord, I need you. I need you to save me. I need you to work in me. I need you to transform me. I need you to make me the person that you created me to be. So Lord, thank you for your redemption. And this day as we go out, we walk in the power of the gospel. We walk in the knowledge of what you have done for us. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series Crux, a verse-by-verse study of Paul's letter to the Colossians. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.